Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. I'm here with Julia Malkina, also a partner in the litigation group and member of the Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Today, we are continuing our series of podcast supplements to SNC's Supreme Court Business Review, our summary of the decisions from this past term that are most relevant to businesses. You can find the Supreme Court Business Review, as well as all of our podcast episodes once they're released, on SNC's website at www.solcrom.com. In this episode, we are joined by our partner, Dustin Guzier, co-head of SNC's IP litigation practice. We are delighted to have Dustin with us to discuss three intellectual property-related cases that the Supreme Court decided last term. United States versus Arthrex Inc., Minerva Surgical Inc. versus Hologic Inc., and Google LLC versus Oracle America Inc. Dustin, thanks very much for joining us. Were you following any of these three IP cases particularly closely? Thanks, Judd and Julia. Nice to join both of you today. Yes, I was following Arthrex closely because it had the potential to impact a major component of U.S. patent litigation, which is inter partes review or IPR. As very brief background, IPR was created in 2012, and it's a U.S. PTO administrative proceeding through which a party challenges the validity of a patent before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, or PTAB. Today, IPR is part of most major patent litigations in the United States because the accused infringer can challenge patent validity without a district court trial. So IPR is cost efficient, and additionally, the patent challenger has a lower burden of proof before the PTAB. Thanks, Dustin. I feel like a lot of recent cases before the court have involved IPR. So in what way did the Arthrex decision have the potential to impact IPR? Well, this case concerns heavy constitutional law issues, but clients and IP lawyers were concerned about a very practical point. What happens if the structure of the PTAB is found unconstitutional? Depending on how the case was decided, prior PTAB decisions could have been vacated. Additionally, it was unclear how mandated changes to the PTAB structure might affect the schedules and deadlines for pending IPRs. Those do sound like very significant potential ramifications. So what did the Supreme Court decide? The court sidestepped the issue that had the potential to create chaos, whether the PTAB's administrative patent judges or APJs were principal officers who need to be appointed by the president with approval of the Senate. APJs are appointed by the Secretary of Commerce. So if that was the Supreme Court's decision, numerous prior PTAB decisions regarding patent validity could have been susceptible to attack. It also would have been difficult to immediately fix the problem if that is what the Supreme Court decided. The court, however, avoided that issue and found that the structure of the PTAB violated the appointment clause of the Constitution only because the director of the USPTO 
did not have sufficient power to review the PTAB's decisions. Before Arthrex, a final written decision of the PTAB would be reconsidered only if the PTAB granted rehearing. Although the final written decision is appealable to the federal circuit, the director had no review authority. So here the Supreme Court said that the US PTO director had to have authority to review the PTAB's decisions. Interesting. So could you tell us about the remedy that the court adopted for that constitutional violation and maybe a little bit about whether and how the US PTO has acted to implement that remedy? Sure. The decision did not have an immediate impact on PTAB practice or PTAB practitioners. The Supreme Court had a range of remedy options from striking the statutes and sending the issue back to Congress, which is what Justice Gorsuch advocated for, to a very narrow remedy, and the court chose to go narrow. The upshot of the remedy is that the USPTO director now has the option, but importantly, not the obligation, to review the PTAB's final written decisions. Now, no one has yet replaced Andre Ayansu as the director of the USPTO, but the acting director at the time very quickly put in place interim measures for review of final written decisions. Under those measures, the director can decide to review final written decisions on his or her own initiative, or the losing party can file a petition for review. In the end, a case that had the potential to cause a lot of work for IP lawyers ended up having a pretty modest impact, at least in the short term. Now, it remains to be seen how many reviews the director will pick up and how often the director will disagree with the PTAB, and that is something we will be watching with curiosity. Thanks for that, Dustin. Now let's shift gears and talk a bit about Venera Surgical. That case seems to concern an issue that is unique to patent law. Can you explain the issue? Definitely, and I think the backstory here is helpful. So an inventor patented a method for treating abnormal bleeding, and the patent was sold to another company. After that sale or assignment of the patent, the new owner obtained different patent claims based on the assigned patent. There are several ways that can happen, but here, the new owner filed what we patent lawyers call a continuation application. The continuation uses the same patent disclosure or specification as the earlier patent, but it includes a different set of claims that define the meets and bounds of the property right. This is very common run-of-the-mill for patent practitioners. In this case, however, the patent claims that the inventor sold were not relevant to the inventor's newer devices, but the new broader claims that the new owner obtained were infringed by those newer devices. So the patent owner sued the inventor for infringement and the inventor argued that the new broader claims were invalid. In response, the patent owner argued that the inventor was precluded from arguing invalidity because of a doctrine called a signer estoppel. Yes, that backstory is very helpful. So now, Dustin, maybe you can explain to us non-patent practitioners, what exactly is a signer estoppel? 
Sure. It's an equitable doctrine in patent law. And as the Supreme Court explained in its decision, a person who assigns a patent to another person provides at least an implied warranty that the assigned patent is valid. So it would be unfair to allow the assigner to take back that warranty and challenge the validity of the patents. That's what we call assigner estoppel. In short, the assigner is estopped from arguing that the sold patent is invalid. So what did the Supreme Court decide with respect to assigner estoppel? And did the Supreme Court agree or disagree with the Federal Circuit's interpretation? The Federal Circuit had decided that assigner estoppel applied to the original assigned patent claims and also to the newer, broader claims that were obtained after the assignment. The Supreme Court disagreed. Although the court rejected the argument that assigner estoppel should be eliminated altogether, and the inventor had argued to the Supreme Court that it should be because assigner estoppel was, it was argued, against public policy, the Supreme Court explained that the estoppel should not extend to circumstances that did not exist at the time of the assignment. So, for example, if the law changes after the patent assignment or is relevant to the Minerva surgical case, the assignee obtains patent claims that are materially different from the assigned claims post-sale. In this particular case, the parties are now back in front of the federal circuit, and just a few days ago, the inventor submitted a brief arguing that the assigner estoppel cannot apply because the new patent claims are materially broader than the assigned claims. So it will be interesting to see how the federal circuit applies the Supreme Court's carve-out to estoppel, and that decision should issue by mid-2022. So what are the practical takeaways for patent practitioners from the Supreme Court's decision in this case? Very simple. Assigner estoppel is alive and well, but it is a specific narrow response to patent invalidity arguments. If the facts and circumstances changed after the date of the patent assignment, then assigner estoppel might not be available. Thanks for those helpful implications, Dustin. Finally, let's touch on the Google Oracle case, which was the Supreme Court's copyright decision of OT 2020. What was the issue there? Well, this case is an old one, Julia. The first phase of this case started in the district court in 2010. In short, Oracle owned a copyright covering the popular Java computer programming language. And when Google created its Android platform, it copied some of that code. The portion that Google copied is part of a tool called an Application Program Interface, or API. The copied code essentially is a user interface that allows a programmer, for example, someone creating an app for Android, to call up pre-written computer tasks used in their own program. The case went through various phases over the past decade, Originally, the trial court found that the API code could not be copyrighted, and then the federal circuit reversed. Then a jury found that Google's use of the code was fair use, which is a defense to copyright infringement, and the federal circuit found that there was no fair use as a matter of law. That's where the Supreme Court picked up the case. And what did the Supreme Court decide? Was this another instance where the court disagreed with the federal circuit? 
The Supreme Court assumed the API code could be copyrighted and the decision focused on fair use. The Supreme Court disagreed with the Federal Circuit on that issue. Here, the Supreme Court went through a pretty straightforward application of the four factors that are relevant to a fair use defense. The nature of the copied work, whether the use was transformative and added something new, the amount of the copying, and the effect on the market for the copied work. The Supreme Court explained first that the copied work was a user interface, not a creative work, which favored fair use. Second, that Google's use was highly transformative because it supported development of the Android platform, again, favoring fair use. Third, the copied user interface was only 0.4% of the entire API code, which the court said did not necessarily favor or disfavor fair use. And finally, Google's Android was not a market substitute for Oracle's Java, which strongly favored fair use. On balance, the Supreme Court found that Google's copying amounted to fair use, which defeats infringement liability. Are there any practical takeaways from the Google Oracle case for our audience, especially companies and practitioners? The decision is very specific to the particular facts of the case, but software companies will want to keep in mind that the Supreme Court has not decided whether something like API code can be copyrighted. That's a question for another day, and the answer isn't simple. Additionally, if a software company is considering suing for copyright infringement or evaluating the risk of being sued for infringement, Google Oracle will serve as a very useful benchmark to measure the strength of a fair use defense. Thanks very much for that, Dustin, and for all of your insights today. That's all we have. Thank you all for listening to SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Please also check out the other episodes of our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series, which are also available on our website. Thank you.